thank you that you're speaking to us because you're a God who loves to talk to your children. You're a God who loves to interact with your people. You're a God who loves to bring your perspective into our lives. And so often we get confused about where you are. So often we forget that you're the God who wants to hold our hands in the midst of trouble. And this morning, Lord, we stake our lives on you afresh today. We say you are our God, you are our King. We can trust you completely because you say your grace is sufficient for us. Your grace is sufficient for us, and we step into that this morning as we consider your words and your ways in Jesus' precious name. Isn't God good? Isn't he great? I just love being part of God's kingdom and his perspective. You know, in 2007, I had the privilege of sharing on a Sunday morning it was the quarterfinals of the World Cup, and New Zealand lost. And I got the job to speak. What a tragedy. Because I tell you, it was like, as if God had died. It was like we had turned up, but God hadn't. It was really hard work, I want to tell you. And this morning, we are full of the victory, aren't we? We are full of a sense that God has done something in our lives. It doesn't often seem like it's all fulfilled. It often feels like there's big gaps. It often feels like the promise that we're holding on for isn't quite there yet. But can I tell you, brothers and sisters, that when God promises something, he never goes back on his word. When he says he will do something, he always will fulfill it. I am so glad that God is not like me. Hey, hey don't be tough on me. I bet you're glad he's not like you either. You know? Uh, God, when God says he does do something, he will do it. When I'd say I'm going to do something, well, it's up for grabs, isn't it? You know? And I think you're a bit the same. So I'm glad, and I'm also glad that God never takes us entirely at our word. I was reminded of this recently when I was on a plane. Uh, it was uh, early February 1979. 1970, early 70, yeah, 1970, early February, I was on a plane. I was flying from Nelson to Wellington to start my new life as a little apprentice electrician. I was 16 and a half at the time, and I knew everything. At least I told my father I did. And I hopped on this plane. I'd been brought up in Nelson Baptist Church, so I'm a bat- backslidden Baptist. I got brought up in the Nelson Baptist Church from the time I was about 10 to that time. And I hopped on that plane that morning. I'd said goodbye to my mates. They came to the airport to say goodbye. We had party the night before. There was 12 of us, and we had six bottles of beer down the back beach in Nelson. And we had a big party. Six bottles of beer. I hated the stuff. I think I had about a cup full of it. Uh, but I was on the plane flying to Wellington, and I made this covenant with God. And the covenant went like this. God, I've ignored you up to now, so please ignore me after now. Because I was on an adventure, and I couldn't see how God could fit into the adventure that I was on. I was ready to throw it all away. I'd been brought up in the Sunday school. I was christened in the Presbyterian church as a baby uh, for a faithful, my faithful mother, one of them, and uh, one of my faithful mothers. And I was then in the Church of Christ for about a year, and then the Baptist Church, and I had figured that by then God would have worked me out. But he hadn't, or at least I didn't think he had. And so I was on this plane saying to God, God, I'm making a new start, and you're not part of the plan. I didn't say it like that, 
But that was the intent. That was what my heart was saying to God. And I arrived in Wellington, and 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I checked into the railway hostel in Hill Street, right behind Parliament Buildings. And that afternoon, I went for a walk. I went, you've heard the story, but I tell you what, the story is so fantastic, I've got to tell you again. I, I went for this walk around Oriental Bay, and around about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, while I was enjoying my freedom, two guys approached me. One guy was called Alan Burdett, who used to come here. The other guy was called Tony Pitt, who is a guy, Trevor, you might remember Tony. These two guys approached me. Now, I'm new. I'm 16 and a half years old. These guys look like they're in their 20s. I discover later on that they're about the same age and, um, or a year, a year apart. And I'm scared because I'm in a new city. I know what big cities are like. You know, I come from Nelson, sheltered upbringing, never did anything wrong, perfect child. And here I'm in Wellington. And <laughs> Stop that, Linda, I saw that. And here I'm in, here I'm in Wellington, and I'm just wondering what this is all about. And these two guys come up to me, and they give me a little piece of paper which invites me to a Christian cafe that night in Wellington. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're running away from something and you think you're on your own and you think you've got it all sussed and what your future is going to hold, God doesn't take you at at your word. He says, I want to do something in your life that you won't ever comprehend or contemplate. You'll never know what I've got in plans that I have in store for you. And that day, that encounter with those two guys changed the direction of my life forever. God intercepted. I made my plans, but God says, I direct the outcome. And today, you might be sitting in some plans that you have made. You might be sitting in some disappointment and some discomfort or some challenge that you're walking through, and you're thinking that it's all about you. It's all about the plans that you made, the decisions that you made. They may not have been the wisest decisions. And you're thinking that you're on this journey alone. But I want to tell you that this morning, God breaks in. God breaks through, and God brings what you need into the circumstance in your life. That's why his grace is sufficient for us today. That's why it is sufficient for us to to nurture and to give us the resources that we need to do what he's asked us to do. Now, I've thrown all that in for free this morning. No charge for that. That was a sideline. And you get that free of charge. Uh, just as a bit of a side, this morning I really have had a burden on my heart that's been growing for some time, and I want to share it with you. It's a bit like, though, you know, being a Nelson boy, we lived right on the pathway of the, uh, of the airport, of the landing strip of the airport. They came right over our house. So if you flew into Nelson or you flew out of Nelson, there's a good likelihood that you would have peered down and you would have seen my backyard when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, the, the planes would come in there, but often on a lovely, quiet, still evening, I'd hear this plane circling way way above the airport. It just went round and round. You could hardly see it. It was so high up. But it would just do this big circle way way above us, and you'd hear this, and then all of a sudden you'd hear the engine cut out. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty challenging when the engine cuts out. But the engine would cut out, and then what seemed like forever, you'd hear these pop, 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 all these noises of parachutes opened up in the sky above you. And there would be nine or so parachutes just up in the air, just drifting down. And the guys would be heading for a target. 
heading, their goal was to meet this target that was down on the, down on the ground somewhere in the airport area. There'll be flares lit so that they could see that, but they'll be going for this target. You know, when they were on the, before they took off, the target was very large. But when you're up so many hundreds, you know, 10,000 feet or whatever it is, the target is quite small. But here they are, they're going for this target. And this morning I feel very much the same way. I feel like I'm going for a target, but the higher up you go, the smaller the target gets. But I want to take you on a journey with me this morning. How about you join me on the plane as we fly up, as we go up as high as we can possibly get so we can get a bit of a bigger perspective as we look down. The target will be down there. We may not hit it this morning. So what? We've had a good time on the way down, hopefully. My father, when he went and did his, uh, his uh, military training in England after World War II, he said they were issued with parachutes and told to bring them back if they didn't open. And, uh, and I suggest that we could do that this morning. Now, if we don't hit target, so what? At least we've had a good time together in the Lord. At least we've been able to look at some things from his perspective. And at least we can consider that God has got some plans and purposes for us. So I thought it would be a good idea if I started with my target first, so at least you know where I'm going, and uh, at least you know if I've got there or not. It's a dangerous thing for a preacher to do, but I think it's worth it this morning, because I believe God has already been speaking to us today about his grace, about his mercy, about what he wants to do in and through our lives, and he's asking us to join in with him on that journey. My key passage this morning is found in Matthew 13. It's a passage you're probably very familiar with. If you've been a Christian for a number of years, if you've had anything to do with sort of wanting to be a disciple and wanting to grow and wanting to be effective in the Lord, you would have read this sort of passage. It's the parable of the hidden talents. I just need some water this morning. Hey, that was a great game, wasn't it? I didn't see it. No. Well, you guys were watching it. I was preparing Hey, I was stirring my heart. I hope this morning you come with a stirred heart. You have? You know, Ephesians tells us to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, it tells us to, to stir up the gift of God that's within us so that we can encourage one another, so we can bring a word in time, so that we can bring something, a word that will help. As Ron asked us to, to pray for people who are in need, we can do that sort of thing because the Spirit of the Lord is in us, and He's anointed us to share His news wherever we go. So here's the parable of the hidden treasure. That is good water. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. When I was first came across this passage, it was um, the passage was all about how the the the, the treasure which is God's kingdom, is so, is so wonderful that it costs us everything we've got. So we've got to give up everything we have to purchase this, this field, this treasure that's hidden in this field. And, and you know, the, the things that never quite gelled with me, as much as I tried to do that, as much as I say, God, I really want to give everything I've got to you, I really want to give everything I have for your purposes, it, I realize that God's gift to us is freely given. 
When God gives us his grace, it, it requires nothing of it. It says, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. When I didn't deserve it, Christ did all the work. He made it possible that we could come and stand in his presence and we could rejoice, we could worship, we could honor him, we could know his plans and his purpose. And so as I was thinking about this recently, um, I realized that this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field when a man found it. Who was the man? Well, the passages earlier on tells us that when, with about another parable, tells us that the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. So we get a picture of this man that this is talking about is Jesus. Jesus is the man. He's the man who found treasure in the field. He found this treasure buried in the field, and he reburied it, and he did everything he could possibly do to purchase the field because the treasure that was in there. You see, God this morning has done everything he can do to purchase us because of the treasure that he has placed there, because of the treasure that he recognizes that we carry, the treasure that he put there in the very first place. And he knows that there's a treasure yet to be revealed in his people. And that's my key passage this morning. See, we make the issue sin, don't we? That's what we make the issue all about life, is all about sin and dealing with sin. So we have some wonderful sin management systems in place, you know, to, to, you know, to minimize sin and maximize purity and do all these really important things. It's, it's important things to do. They're important disciplines. But even though sin is an issue, sin is not the issue. Often we talk about accountability. But wonder if we were to turn that around and say accountability is not our sin management system, but accountability is accounting for our ability. Most of us are accounting for our disability. But why don't we account for our ability? What has God put in us? What treasure has he put in us that he's wanting us to bring out and allow to be revealed into this community of people, into the community around us, into this nation? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we saw that our role was to account for our ability, right? Not just try to manage sin. Not just try to manage the things that we have difficulty over, but release the gift of God that is in us, that will bring hope and bring life and bring vitality into this world. Uh, last time I spoke, I spoke on Moses, and I'm really, you, you people are so gracious because I told, I, I told the story about Moses being brought, in, brought up in, in Herod's household, which of course is a whole lot of rubbish. He was brought up in Pharaoh's household, wasn't he? But you were so gracious, you just sat there and smiled. So yeah, Pete, it'll, Pete, it'll dawn on Pete later on. And so I told a whole story around that. And I also mentioned that, uh, that, um, uh, that Moses' father-in-law was um, Laban. And of course it wasn't Laban. But why spoil a good story with facts? <laughs> eh? That's what my son says. He says, you know, don't let facts get in the way of a good story. And, uh, and so, and we didn't, and we had a good time, and it was really good to be encouraged in the Lord and to know that even though we can get some facts wrong, that God is still in control. But hopefully I just want to put a few things around this morning that, you know, uh, a little bit more research perhaps, but, uh, you know, the children of Israel, if we go back to that time, they were in bondage. They were in Egypt. 
They were enslaved. They were captive. They were being forced to do things they didn't want to do. They were grumbling. They were complaining. They were, they were in a place where it wasn't the plan that God had for them. But they had been let there 400 years beforehand because of a famine. The famine 400 years ago of Joseph got them into Egypt. But now they had forgotten, the, the, the rulers of the day had forgotten about Joseph, forgotten about what he had done, forgotten about uh, the change and the tremendous abilities that, he, that God had put in him. They'd forgotten all about that, and now they'd made the people their slaves. And here were the poor Israelites, called to be a great nation, now living under slavery, now living in bondage, and crying out to God for release. And praise God, God raises up Moses and uh, puts in Moses' heart this need to get his people out of bondage, get his people liberated and free. He becomes a deliverer, and God uses him as he parts the Red Sea, and we see this as a whole picture of salvation, of being taken out of the enemy's camp, or being taken out of bondage, and into this new life where the salvation of God, the saving power of God is at work. And so they're taken through the Red Sea, and they find themselves in the desert. And in the desert, of course, nothing wears out. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Nothing at all wears out. Everything is provided for them. Their food is provided for them. Their shoes, there's no worry about having to get the latest pair of shoes or the latest um, wagon, you know, the the latest um, uh, motor vehicle or no need to have to try and keep up with the Joneses because nothing wears out. It just keeps on going. So they get the, uh, you know, they're in the desert and they have the initial chance to go into the promised land and they send up two, 10 spies, of which you know only two come back with a positive report. Only two were yes men. Only two said, yes, the land is flowing with milk and honey. Yes, there are giants. Let's be real about it. There are giants in the land. There are obstacles we have to overcome. But yes, we can overcome. And uh, they, of course, because of that, because only eight of the ten said, no, we can't do it, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. But they had God's provision, manna and quail, shoes that never wore out, Cloud by day, fire by night. It wasn't all bad, or it wasn't all just that. It just wasn't all maintenance, but there were some significant things that God did in their lives during that time of wilderness experience. God brought them the law. In other words, how do we live with one, um, how do we live with one another? Justice. How do you provide for those who are in need? All those areas around law and order and handling yourself and looking after one another. Was, re- was revealed to them at that time. He also instituted uh, the sacrificial system. In other words, how do we worship? How do we place God at the center of everything we do? See, worship is not just something we do on a Sunday morning. It's not just something, it's not just an event that we, that we do. Worship is part of our lives. It's part of who we are. It's the very DNA that God, God has stamped on you. Right now, you're a worshiping being. You may not realize that this morning. You might say, I'm a grumpy, uh, grumpy old soul. But God says you're a worshiper. God says he's put the spirit of worship inside of you. And you can do everything you can try to do to stomp that down and to, and to stop it from coming out. But I tell you what, what's in will eventually come out. 
The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And if God says you're a worshiper, you can be jolly sure that one day you're going to find that worship will come out. I was at a meeting recently, and it was, um, uh, it was a meeting uh, of people who don't necessarily believe in the gifts and the unction, if you like to say, of the Holy Spirit. And we were praying, and I was praying, got my turn to pray, and I suddenly found, as I was praying, that these words were forming in my mind. And I thought, oh, I can't say that here. This will, this will scare them, you know. But I found that as we were praying, there was worship coming up and was welling up in my heart. And I was finding it, I was having to push it down. No, Lord, you can't, not here. I was, you know, I was physically having to hold myself back from releasing what was natural. And if you have never had that release, can I encourage you that today you can start reaching out for it? You can start reaching out for it because it's there. God says he's given his people to his spirit, and his spirit wants to bubble up. It says out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living water, and that will start to bubble up, and it waters those, those arid areas of our lives, those areas where we're, we're in despair, that, as Viv is talking about, when we've, we, we've walked through uh, so much difficulty and trouble. You need the water of the Holy Spirit to bubble up and to water those areas. Because nothing will grow unless it has water. See, you won't grow unless you have water. And if you don't allow that water to bubble up, to, to be released in your spirit, nothing will grow. All you'll have is a few dead plants to show for it. But God wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to multiply. My multiplying days are over, by the way. But God wants us to multiply, okay? Some of you have still got some choices there. So... Uh, so that water, that oil, that, that oil, that, that joy of the Holy Spirit can start to bubble up inside of you today. Don't go home today without beginning to experience or to tap into that, that release of His Spirit. <clears throat> Worship is a lifestyle we cultivate. It's not an event. Ephesians 5, like I quoted before, don't be drunk with wine let me just read it, uh, Ephesians, Galatians. It's in the New Testament, isn't it? Galatians, Ephesians 5. A wonderful passage. I, can't, I just, It just reinvigorated me today. I, uh, sorry, this last week, it was, my, um, it was my memory verse, which I haven't memorized yet. <laughs> it's still getting there. <clears throat> Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to immorality. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Right? Filled. Not just dabble in it, but be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you might think singing is just for sissies. I want to tell it's not. The Bible tells us to sing. You might think it's just for girls, ladies, and old men like me, but God says sing. Sing your heart out. Sing and make melody. Yesterday we were down at, at my grandch- uh, my daughter's place over in Parramatta and my little three-year-old Ella was sitting on the doorstep. She was totally oblivious that anybody was watching. She went on, sorry, not sitting on the doorstep. She was standing on the doorstep, down one step down, and she was doing this. I can't do it very well, but she can. She was jiggling and she was singing. 
And apparently she does this all the time. It's just joy just bubbles up inside of her. She makes up songs. Three years old. The older you get, the more it seems to be stupid, doesn't it? But God says, unless we become as little little children, we can't experience his kingdom. We can't jiggle. We can't sing out of our spirit. You know, we, and she was just being herself. She was just standing there jiggling away and singing and doing these cool little moves. Oh, man, my heart just, oh, that's my grandchild. That's some produce, you know. I have to, I've produced that. No, second, you know, in a way. Yeah, haven't I? I've been party to that, you know. That's my investment in the future, this little jiggler, right? May she continue jiggling for the rest of her life. I wanted to. So they're in the they're in the desert for forty years, and then the jo- Joshua gets the call. Moses, my servant, is dead. Get ready to cross the Jordan. I will give you every place where you set your feet. You see, God never intended his people to be nomadic. He always intended them to possess the land, to take ownership. Never intended. The goal never was to have them wandering in the desert for 40 years. The goal was always, his inheritance was always to give them land, to give them a place where they could put down their put down their roots, where they could experience his providence and his provision, but also they could see some other things happen as well. Um, in 1996, 1995, we had to sell our house in Golders Road. There was a house, our first home we ever owned. It was, uh, it was a little council house, the worst house on the street. The council wanted to get rid of it. And I went up to the chief executive of the council and I made him an offer. And he said to me, you know, other people are looking at this house. I said, oh, are they? And um, so Rawiri was the one actually who put me in t- contact with the, with, the, uh, um, with the CEO. He told me to go and see him, so, which I did, of course. And I was, uh, yeah, it was very funny. And he said, there are other people looking at this house. I said, oh, okay, then how about we do, and we, we did a bit of argy-bargy. And, uh, and as it turned out, they accepted our offer. And we got this house, a wonderful provision from God. And over some years, we did some work to it. We took a, put a top story on. We doubled the size of the house. We doubled the mortgage. And, uh, and we did a whole lot of other things, as you do when you're young, and perhaps when I'm young. My wife is probably has another view on that. And uh, came around, of course, the financial, global financial crisis in in the late uh, ninth, uh, late 80s, and then 90s was a real struggle for us in business, and in the mid-90s, we had to sell that house to fund our way out of some trouble. And God gave us, very graciously, gave us a house to rent in Arnott Avenue. And we rented that house from 1996 to 2003. So seven years, eight years nearly, we, we rented that house and one day I woke up and I said that I wonder whether the owners would like to sell this house. So I rang them. And uh, they said to me, funny enough, we're going to ring you and ask you whether we wanted to buy the house. 
And we said, yeah, we do. So we did some argy and bargy. Seems to be the story of my life. And we agreed on a figure, and miraculously we are able to get a mortgage and, uh, and buy this place. It wasn't until we bought that house that we had ownership. It's not until we bought that place that we felt we belonged. Up until that point, we were just occupiers. We were just using the facilities. And we loved the facilities. It was a great house. We loved the facilities, but we had no responsibility for maintenance. We had no responsibility for, um, uh, for um, the rates. We had no responsibility for insurances. We had no responsibility for uh, anything of the outgoings of the property. But we had no benefit either from the value of the increasing property. It was going up in price. And every year we stayed, it went up further. And if we'd stayed any longer, we would never have been able to afford it. And so we were fortunate we were able to buy it at the time we bought it, you see. But we invested in a property. We invested at that particular point in time, and we had ownership. And then we felt like we belonged in Upper Hutt. We felt like we'd put our roots down. We felt we had a reason to stay. We had a, felt we had a responsibility. We had a mortgage to pay again, you know. Up until that point, we could have gone anywhere we liked. We could have gone here, there, and everywhere. We didn't have to be committed anywhere. We could have just done what we wanted. But now God had said, I want you for this period of time to be established, to be settled, to to put your roots back down again because there's some things I want to bring, some treasure in you I want to bring out. But there are two qualities that are required, and Joshua discovered these two qualities God said on three occasions to Joshua, Joshua, be strong and courageous. The next time he said, Joshua, be strong and very courageous. And then the third time he reiterated, as if Joshua hadn't heard up to that point, Joshua, be strong and courageous. You see, we need two qualities if we want to possess what God has got for us. One is strength, which is robustness or being able to be durable or stable, or sturdy. They all talk about strength. And we need courage. That's the ability to do something that frightens the dickens out of us. Or it's the strength in the face of pain or grief. Courage, the ability to do something that frightens us, scares our wits, or the strength in the face of pain or grief. And I sense this morning that God wants to give both of those things to us today. Because, you know, we're on a journey, on a new journey. We're in a new season. God is telling us to cross the Jordan. He's telling us to cross over again. When they crossed the Jordan, it was like a baptism. It was where they left the old behind and they started stepping out into the new. They baptized, they died to their old life in the Jordan River. The priest went first carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And when they put their feet into the water, the water stopped at that point in time. And they were able to cross it on dry ground. Interesting that the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant. The priests carried the presence of God. Guess what God calls you today? Priests. You carry the presence of God. And they carried that across and the people crossed it on dry land. The river was in flood at that time. It's usual for that time of the year because that's a time of harvest and the river was in flood. They, uh, the water banked up. The entire nation crossed on dry ground. So they're in the promised land. They've come out of Egypt. They've come out of bondage. They've wandered for 40 years 
and now they're in the promised land. And I believe that this is quite significant for us at this point in time in our journey. I believe, you know, as Christians, of course, we're all in the promised land. But a little passage I stumbled across the other day in this story really just caused me to... um, Let me just find it. It's in... Joshua, of course. Can I read it to you? This is really... Before they could go any further, they had to have a right, a cleansing right. We won't go into details. For men, it's really painful. Okay? And uh, there's a cutting off. There's a severing that had to occur. And uh, they can't walk for several days or weeks afterwards. It's, it's really painful. But because we're G-rated this morning, I can't go into any details. So that, this, this happens at a place called Gilgal, not far from Jericho. Jericho is just down the road a few miles. And so they have to go through this ceremonial, this, this, this cleansing rite. They go through that. And here's this little, after, they, after they're all healed and they're ready to go, they remain in the camp at Gilgal until they've been healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today, remember they're in the promised land, right? They've gone through quite a journey to get there. But today, God says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Let me put that into today's English. Today, I have removed the disgrace of being slaves in Egypt. They're in the promised land, brothers and sisters. They're like us. They're in the promised land. Right? They've come, they've been, to, they've got saved. They've gone through the waters of the Red Sea. They've been saved from their enemies. They've gone through the Jordan River. They've been baptized. But now they're in a situation where, up until that point, up until that very point, they have been in disgrace because of being slaves in Egypt. And I think we as Christians carry, I think we carry over from our days when we didn't know the Lord, we carry over some of the baggage that hangs on us. I know that Scripture tells us that we are completely new, but it also tells us that we're being made new. You know, we're not just there yet. We've we've carried this baggage with us, but there's something has happened at this point in time where they have been, they've had this ceremony, they've had this rite of passage where there's been a severance, there's been a cutoff, and now God says, I have removed the shame. And God wants to remove the shame from us. Now, what is shame? It's the stuff that holds us back. Let me read you a few things. And then we'll wrap this up because the landing pad is not far away. I can see the parachutes are coming down. And um, we should just find out where this piece of paper is that I wrote some notes on. And, um, and I sure, I'm sure I brought it with me. Okay, who's taking my piece of paper? So what is a shame? 
Shame is anything that holds us back from fulfilling what God wants us to do. Shame could be unfulfilled words that we've had over us. You know, promises that we believe that, that were going to be for us. Shame could be things that we've done in the past that had that sort of nagging feeling that we've never quite, you know, we've never quite overcome. Shame could be things that we've done that, that even now that we know that we've, we've repented for, we've asked God for his forgiveness, we've, we've endeavored to walk in righteousness, but there still seems to be that sort of thing that, you know, that, that holds us. Shame is things that would prevent us from getting connected properly, stops us from, from forming strong relationships and staying in those relationships. You know, that, that puts a barrier up between us and others, puts a barrier up between us and God, stops us from coming into his presence with, with freedom and liberty and just being able to say, God, I'm yours and I give it to you. That's what shame does. It just it holds us back. It stops us from doing the very thing that God wants us to do, the very thing he wants us to be. It changes the way we see ourselves. It blocks out God's light. It brings condemnation instead of conviction. It prevents us from being fruitful. It's what Jesse was saying the other day. You know, if we don't, if we forget who we are, uh, uh, if we forget who we are, we become what we were. You know, we don't we don't hold what God has put in us. It suffocates our ability to be or stay connected. It keeps us walking in defeat, and it robs us of joy and vitality. Who wants joy and vitality this morning? Who feels that they need joy and vitality this morning? Only a couple of us. Okay, that's excellent. Who would who thinks that somewhere down the track they might get joy and vitality? Oh, good, good. Excellent. Well, let's say we believe today that God wants to do that. They celebrated Passover. The very next day, they ate some of the produce of the land. And then the manna stopped. God's provision didn't stop, but the manna stopped. And then it says, but then we can say, they went from God doing miracles for them to God doing miracles through them. Big shift. God doing miracles for us, providing for our every need, to God doing miracles through us. You know, God wants to do miracles through us. He wants us to be life-giving spirits, not just living beings. He's created you to be a worshiper. He's placed in you the spirit of worship. He's put a treasure inside of you that only as you cooperate with him will that treasure be released. And I want to call out today that treasure that God has placed in you. Because to be a life-giving spirit, you need to understand what God has placed there. He doesn't hide it from us. He doesn't, he doesn't say it's a big secret. He says, I've given it to you freely, and I want to release it in you, that it would bubble and overflow, and it would become a life, that you would become a life-giving spirit. Some weeks ago, Kerry and I were in Auckland, and I've told this story to some people, just in wrapping up, and we were on our way to Waiwera Hot Pools. No, we went to Waiwera Hot Pools, actually, and we sat in these pools, and it was lovely up there. Have you been to Waiwera? It's a great place, natural springs, you know glorious water, sitting in the pools. And we could hear some people talking in the same pools as I. A couple were sitting over there and they were were chatting. We knew they weren't Christians from their talk. Well, I did anyway, Uh, from their language, what they say, you know. But didn't matter. 
So we, they got out and went their merry way, and we got out and we um, got changed and had to go up a bit further up the country. And we got to the car park, hopped in the car, and this couple had the bonnet up of their car right next door to our car. Bonnet was up, and they were in the, under the bonnet poking around. And I thought to myself, well, I know nothing about cars. I know where you put the petrol, and I know how to steer the thing and make it work. And I, and I thought to myself, well, silver and gold, I don't have any, but what I do have, I'll give them. You see, I don't have any skills in mechanics. I can check the water, but I've got nothing else. So I went across to them, and I said, guys, what's the problem? And they said, well, the car keeps overheating. I said, where did you come from? They said, from Auckland, which is about an hour's drive away. I said, how far do you have to go? They said, we've got to go with another four hours on our journey. And they had some water that they were pouring into the radiator. And so I said to them, had a, I had a look, check the things you're supposed to check, the oil, the water, fan belt. thought, that's it, I've done my dash. Laid my hands, I said, laid my hand on their bonnet of their car and said, what say we pray? Crazy, stupidest thing in the world to do. I know they're not Christians. I don't know a thing about cars, make the, how they, if they've broken down, but I do know how to pray. Stuck my hand on the bonnet. I think we need to pray. She says, all right. <laughs> I said, Lord Jesus. And I lay my hands on it. And as I say, I lay my hands. He brings his hand across and lays his hand on the bonnet. I want to tell you, man, God is awesome. When they lay their hands on the bonnet in response to you, you know, you can change things. So I lay my hands on the bonnet. Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray you heal this car. Does God heal cars? I don't know. I didn't have time to ask him. Lord, do you heal cars? All I know is that that's what I said. Lord, heal this car. He lays his hands on it. I finished praying. You know, I get a bit excited when I pray, you know, as you probably know. I get a bit excited. I thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for these travel up north and may you bless them and may your presence fill this car. Amen. And they say, Amen. Isn't that cool? Isn't that God? Stand, people. Stand this morning. God wants to do some amen in your life today. He's a faithful God. Reach out today. Put your hand on the bonnet. It might be the problem you've got today. It might be that thing you're struggling with. You know, it might be broken down. Put your hand on the bonnet. Just imagine that's a bonnet. You know, we're coming into land now. We're so the parachutes are coming down. We've probably missed the landing zone, but who cares? We've had fun on the way. So put your hand on that bonnet. That Whatever that obstacle might be, whatever that sense of failure, that sense of shame, that sense of struggle that you've been walking through, that sense where you don't, I can't hear God in the midst of my circumstances. I know he's there. I hope he's there. But he better be there. But put your hand on that bonnet, and as we pray, you pray with me. I'm not just going to do all the work, you know. You pray with me in your spirit. Father, we reach out to you this morning. We know that you're a God of grace and mercy. We know, Lord, you led your people through the, uh, through out of Egypt, through the, uh, through the the desert. That your cloud went before them by day, your fire went before them by night. You provided for them everything they needed, 
And yet when they got to the promised land, there was still a shame over them. And we know there's shame over us. We know there's issues that we can't seem to overcome this morning. So we lay our hands on the bonnet of that problem today. We know there's disappointments that we carry, Lord. We know there's this sense of loss, Lord. We just lay our hand on that bonnet because we ask Jesus that you would come into our very midst today and you'd minister your healing power. You'd minister your life-giving spirit to us, Lord. We speak out today because we know we need you more than we ever needed you before. We know that we're bankrupt in spirit, but you've given it, put a treasure inside of us that you want to reveal today by your spirit. That you want to bring us into a place of fruitfulness. You want to bring us into, back into a place of hope. You want to know that we're on a journey of discovery, of discovering that you're the God who not only carries us in your arms, Lord, but you equip us for your purpose. And so we lay our hands on that problem right now. We lay our hands on that bonnet now, and we ask you to release your life-giving spirit into our circumstances in Jesus' precious name. Bring your release afresh today to your people, Lord. Thank you. You love these people. They're your children. They're called by your name. Lord, you've taken them out of darkness, and you've translated them to the kingdom of your dear Son. You've put a new word in their hearts. You've put worship in their spirit. They can do nothing else but worship and glorify you because that's what they were created for. That's what they've been formed for. And we release that today in Jesus' name. We tell it to come forth, bubble up, Spirit of God, Lord, we thank you that you say out of the innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's not a maybe, that's a promise. And we need that water to bubble up to water those dry areas in our lives. And so we come to you this morning, Father. We say thank you that you've called us to a place of upper hut at a time like this for a purpose, for a reason, because you're taking us to be the answer to this world and its needs and an answer to our world and our needs. And we thank you for that in your precious name. Glorify yourself. And God's people said, yes and amen. Hallelujah. Oh, God. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I just believe this morning that some people need to be released. If you, I sense that God's Spirit is here to bring release today. If you feel you're in that place, you feel like you're dried and withered up, I just would encourage you, just take a step of faith. A couple of steps, maybe half a dozen. Come up to the front or get someone around you to lay their hands on you and say, Lord, I, I need, please pray for me because I need a release of that life-giving water again today. You know, we don't want to make it this a, a fanfare, but we do want to minister to God's people in a way that is real and is life-giving and brings hope and helps us to understand that we're living our lives in purpose and for his glory. Isn't that cool? So I make this place available if you want to come.